Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and welcome to this episode of MedHeads. We have our regular guest, Craig Payne, and our special guest, Oscar Grano, with us today. How are you both? Very well. Thanks, Fergal. Yeah, I'm good. How are you, Fergal? I'm good. I'm good. So I thought today we'd talk about desperation and willingness. And Oscar, I've heard you speak eloquently in the past on this subject. And one of the things that you've said is the gift of desperation. Tell me, Oscar, what you mean by the gift of desperation. Uh, well, what I mean by the gift of desperation is that more often than not, people who are suffering from addiction will often not do what it really takes to make the change necessary to actually get into recovery mm-hmm. until they're so desperate that they feel they have no other choice. So mm-hmm. it's from that desperation Oh, the desperation is what leverages them into uh, actually making significant enough changes in their lives to be able to get recovery. And it's often that unless somebody feels they have no other choice, you know, and they feel like what they're doing is not working, will they attempt to do something else? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting that you use the word gift. I mean, I remember, in fact, I spoke to someone on, uh, a couple of days ago. And he was actually a pharmacist that, got, that had gone into med school and he'd finished his med school training and he'd almost finished his intern year and then he got fined out because he was uh, using or misusing prescription drugs. And he was telling me his story and he said to me, near the end of his story, he said, you know what, it was actually the best thing that happened to me that I got caught. Mm-hmm. And he spoke of it in very positive positive terms. So that rock bottom, that transition, that it does create the desperation where wherein people or whereby people really do need to make a change. And that change is for the better, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Craig, what do you think about that? What do you think about the gift of desperation? Yeah, well it's um it's a, a place <clears throat> of fear that uh that opens as as Oscar said, you know, that that opens the doorway to finally making change um, because sometimes you don't know if you're going to make it back from that from that point where you're finally willing to try anything sorry craig you dropped out we'll have to cut back to you yeah okay i'll come i'll ask the question yeah so craig what do you think about the gift of desperation yeah, it's exactly that, um, and you know, it, it's that place, as Oscar said, where you're f- finally willing to um, to make change and to start to listen to new ideas. Um, it's it, so, sometimes it, it's born from a place of fear, sometimes too, where you're afraid that maybe you don't come back from the next one. Yeah, that that fear that the next time could be your last time is that is that an issue for for. For people going into recovery, um, Oscar, the next time could be the last time. Yes and no. <clears throat> yes and no. Um, 
I think it's different for everybody. I think that some people who are in denial uh, can be in denial about how serious it is. And uh, it's, you know, it, well, you know, I've seen a lot of people who are in that kind of place uh, end up passing away from it um, because they're not, they haven't come to grips with the reality of how, of how serious it is. And yeah. uh, I suppose the hope is, is that people realise how serious it is before it gets to that point because that's yeah. the reality of it. I mean, one of the things that I've seen and heard and read about is the fact that this idea of rock bottom, rock bottom in the context of someone with addiction has to really be rock bottom because remember that patients with addictions, their lives are full of pain and misery and suffering. So that daily pain, misery and suffering or, say, or rather, the rock bottom has to be even worse than the daily pain and misery and suffering for there to be some kind of positive gain in it. Is, is, is that, am I off the mark? What do you guys think about that? Oscar first. Um, you know, again, it's, it, it's different for everybody. You know, some people will fall really hard and really fast and other people will exist in a state of, of which you're speaking where it's just... Um, you know, I've, I've heard people say that, that they lived in a rock bottom for a long time before yeah. they got into recovery. Um, yeah. And I think uh, the way that people define that is is entirely different. And also what, what it takes for people is entirely different and what lengths people have to go to to realise that, um, you know, it's time to find another way mm. is completely different. Yeah, Craig, what do you think? What do you think about um, the misery of daily life compared to rock bottom? Yeah, well, it's interesting, as Oscar said, because it's, for some people it becomes that comfort zone and living in that becomes normality and you know you can survive and, and if you haven't got much, if you haven't got anything, then not much can get to you either, you know. So, mm. um, But it once you start to realise it can be... Um, it can be finally that place where you start to do it for yourself and it's that it's a real motivator for change in that sense um, and in some ways needs to be grasped onto and held onto and not forgotten um, because and even I think it it's one of the things that, lead, that leads to relapse is is forgetting what it's what it gets like too um, and and you know, you so you, so you think, oh, maybe I can control again. In a little bit of time, when things improve, you think, oh, it, it can send you back to that control method. So, really remembering what what it is and where it takes you. Um, so, and so, sometimes it can take a few falls before you really start to listen to. Well, that's where it's going to take me every time. But what do you think about the idea that for some people the fear of their next hit being their last hit is meaningless because their lives are such misery? And how do you deal with that, Craig? Yeah, it's a hard one. Um, and I suppose it's where you start to look at trying to get some self-esteem building and starting to look at circumstances and, and, um, and hoping to find some meaning uh, in their life for them or, or in a future for them and start to start to show that uh, there is hope out there. And I think, and that's what being around other addicts and alcoholics can do. So the, the, the idea that you've got to uplift yourself, you know, when you're at rock bottom, when you uplift yourself, when you turn that corner, you've got to ascend through all the misery that you descended to uh, through originally. 
So the only way that you can have the strength to do that is, as you say, then to achieve those uh, or establish those connections with people who've been there, done that, and there to provide you with unconditional kindness. Now, Oscar, you've used the phrase unconditional kindness to me before. So what do you think about that idea? What, what is it that, that gives people, how do you help people who don't care if their next hit is their last hit? How do you, how do you help them? Um, well, I mean, I think it, it really comes down to uh, asking them if they've had enough and, and, and trying to get into a place with somebody where um, you can just be quite frank about it, you know, and, and um, if somebody decides that they've had enough and that they want to find another way, then that's great. We can explore stuff. We can have that conversation. Um, we can start to look at what does that look like for, for you, you know, for the individual. Um, but if somebody isn't ready, you know, isn't ready for that, then they're not ready for it and, and nothing can mm -hmm. force them to be ready for it. But, but, but the thing within that as well is that there are support groups which are not abstinence-based as well, where people who are still in a place where they're unsure whether they need complete abstinence or whether they still want to try and control it in some way, that they can still go and they can try and work on those short-term goals and, and use that as a stepping stone towards the journey of discovering what lengths they need to go to to get the quality of life that they want. So there's something for everyone, you know, no matter what kind of stage they're at, I think. So, Oscar, these non-abstinence-based support groups, how freely accessible are they? And, you know, why haven't people heard about them more than, than they perhaps ought to? How do you find them? Uh, well, the, with the groups that I'm referring to, um, the only place that I've really heard about them myself is through services. Um, I haven't seen them advertised and, um, yeah, they, you know, they are, they are open community groups, but a lot of them are run, um, you know, in, in and by services as well. So I'd say, you know, may, maybe if somebody hadn't engaged with services before that they might not have heard of them. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose it's another way of thinking that it's kind of a, almost like a peer-led or peer-supported AOD counselling because the whole concept of AOD counselling is that you accept where the person is and then you gradually work on making small but incremental changes in that person's drug use. So harm reduction very much is the core to that. Would you agree, uh, Craig? Uh, yeah, and I think, um, look... <laughs> On a couple of points that have been raised there, it's um, it's, it's important to remember that yeah, you know, not everyone wants the help that we perceive they need necessarily, or um, or or yeah, and they're just they're just they're just not ready for it. Um, but definitely um, easing into that support that support these support programs and easing into um, ideas of change can can really take time. Um, you know, for some people, this yeah. life is. Is is ingrained and yeah, and it's really hard to start to turn around those values um, and start to turn around the, those goals and, and what what they're looking forward at. So that's an interesting point, Craig, that you've made. That that, that rock bottom actually can take time, and the change and the the, 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 the change in course can be years. You've said that uh, people live in rock bottom for a long time, haven't you? Yeah, well, I think, and this is the thing: is that it. it <sighs> 
it's it's not the gateway. Well, it's a gateway to change, but it's more the gateway to opening up the idea of change. Yeah. Um, and again, it's going to take time to reinforce. Again, it's going to take time to explore with people and and find out what change looks like for them. Yeah. So they get to dip their toe in the water and they get to see how other people have have managed the situation that they're in. But it's not the it's not the, uh, the it's not the beginning of the end. It's not the end of it, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. No, well, I mean, it's a it's a new way of living. It's a new way of looking at life, and you know, and it, so this takes time to to turn around. You, you know, your thought processes, your emotions, all this stuff just doesn't change overnight. Just because you're finally willing and you're, you're desperate enough for it, that doesn't mean yeah. that it's going to happen straight away, and doesn't mean that it's going to be easy to understand or easy to grasp. Yeah. And there's a lot of fear there, isn't it? It's very scary. It's a scary place to be in, as, as you've said before, Craig. Yeah, absolutely. Fear of the unknown, you know, like yeah. li- living that living a life completely differently, giving up on the old ideas, giving up on friends, family and you know, environment, c- certain people, you know, all, all this sort of stuff. And, um, you know, and just looking after you again, it's a it's a scary, scary space to hold. So, Oscar, do you find that fear interacts with desperation and that there's a battle between the two uh, emotions? And if the fear wins, then people don't progress in recovery. If the desperation wins, then people do progress in in recovery. Is that something that you would identify with? Yes and no. Um, You know, I think it's the fear that you experience within the desperation which can also propel you to make the change. Um, because, you know, it's, it's, yes, there's the fear of change, but there's also the fear of living the way that I'm living and uh, the place that, I've, that this has gotten me to has become so terrifying that I'm going to do whatever it takes to find another way so I don't have to live this way anymore. So I think it can work both ways. Mm. Right. And what do you think about that, Craig? Yeah, and and not forgetting it. I think that that's the big one. Is you know, as things do start to change, as things do start to progress, um, it, it's easy for that desperation and willingness to subside, and you start to f- figure out if it's if if the drive is actually a real internal drive to change, and it's actually coming from you, or whether it was just the fact that you found yourself in a in a different situation with no way out, and so making some change was it, and. Yeah, and then things start to do start to change and do start to get a little little bit better, um, and that fear subsides, and so yeah. it's not there anymore, and, and it's not driving you, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. always remembering what that is um, and, and and how long how low it can take you. It's a, that thing if you know my, my past will um where's it uh, my past will it'll remind me but not define me, you know. So so I not like getting that. lost in not getting yeah. lost in that stuff. Yeah, you know? and we we need these constant well I think in a lot in a lot of cases you need the constant reminders to to point out where it, where it can take you again. So when you start mm. to look at these things, you start to think oh maybe it's a good idea or maybe I can just do it once again and maybe I can start mm. to integrate it using back into my life. Yeah. Got to remember where it's going to take you and how quickly it can take you there. So my past will remind me but it will not define me. Oscar Tell me something about that. What does that speak to you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, and even in my own recovery, you know, because yeah. 
we definitely have a tendency to have uh, selective memory, you know, and, you know, for me, it's very important to be around people who are in early recovery and who are struggling with this stuff. So I get a constant reminder of, you know, what the reality could become if I were to pick up again, you know, even though I've, I've been in recovery for over a decade, but that reminder is still important. Hmm. And it's also important when working with people to remind them that, you know, we, we're constantly saying, write stuff down, you know, write down how you're feeling, keep a journal yeah. um, to, to remind yourself of what these early days were like. So you can look back at that, see how far you've come and, and see why you don't want to go back there. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So moving on, Craig, I've heard you say the phrase frequently that it's, uh, you know, it's, Recovery begins when your mouth shuts and your ears open. To what extent does desperation and willingness play into that concept? Uh, it's essential. Um, it's, I mean, it's one thing to to sit there and, um, and and to have people tell you things, and you know, and people can tell you things over and over again. But if you're not listening and you're not actually going to enforce that and make these changes in your life, then it's just pointless. Um, and again, it's that that thing where the back's against the wall, and maybe yeah, you've you've tried everything, you've you've, you've tried try, well tried everything that you think will work, but then you're finally willing to shut up and try things that other people are telling you has worked for them, and to and to just give it a go. You know that. There's the you know sick and tired of being sick and tired. Are you yeah. are you actually are you actually yeah. sick and tired of? Because yeah. if you are, that's where you'll start to to do things. And yeah, for the, and instead of arguing, instead of talking back, instead of trying to justify why things won't work for you, yeah. you'll just do it and see where it goes. Yeah, and that's that's uh, personally for me as a therapist, I find it very frustrating trying to help people who are at that point where they, they know that they've got a, a problem, they know they've got to seek my help. And then when I get to the point of recommending that they start engaging in peer support groups, that's when the back chat comes to me and there's, oh, you know, I'm different, I don't need it, you know, I can do it on my own, or there's no, you know, I, I don't want to be part of it because you know, they don't understand me. And, and I tell them, look, I'm, you know, this is, these are groups where you, okay, you might not, you, if you stay long enough, eventually you'll hear what you need to hear. And, you know, the, the groups are all characterized in the various ways by unconditional kindness and they're all going to accept you. Dealing with that person in that stage where there's still the back chat, where the mouth is still open and the ears aren't open yet, and they haven't got to the point where they're so desperate that they are actually willing to give it a go. For me as a therapist, is, is quite challenging because I can see that they're almost there. They just need to take a few more steps. But unless they take those steps, they're just not going to get better. You know, because one thing that, that uh, I try and tell my patients is, is you know, even though I can prescribe the medication to help them, unless they start dealing with their issues in their life that drove them towards their substance use, they're not going to make it. So for me, that stage when their mouth is still open and their ears are shut, to me, is a challenge. I mean, would you, would you uh, identify with that, Oscar, in your group work? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's incredibly challenging when, yeah. 
you know, people, yeah, when, like you're saying, when they're seeking help and they know that something needs to change, but, but then, you know, when it, when it comes to the crunch, it's like, they're not really willing to change much at all. And, um, one thing that, uh, you know, is good about the position that I'm in, you know, as, as a peer support worker is I'm able to just sit in a space with somebody where they are and try to maintain some kind of connection and I'm able to go, you know, we can be in this space and we can be in this space on your terms and, you know, I've had relationships with people that have lasted a long period of time and in the beginning they're not willing to really change much at all but just by keeping Mm. that door open to that connection, you know, it means that when they are ready to start exploring things and, and exploring a greater level of change that they've got that pathway to do it. And I suppose it's, it alludes to the fact that it's the engagement actually that is the beginning of the therapeutic process. And so long as they are beginning, engaging mm. at some level, then there is actually hope for change. What mm. do you think about that, Craig? Um, you know, how frustrating yeah, do you find it to deal with, with uh, patients in that situation? Well, I, I think it, it demonstrates the value of, of um, shared experience um, and it's where peer workers are so, are so valuable again. Um, mm. But it's that thing, if you can't help someone, if they're, if they're not willing to, to help themselves and they're not willing mm. to look at new ideas, you know. And so you can keep just sharing experiences. You can keep um, sending messages of hope and just – but also try and explore the idea of, of why they don't think it works for them and what makes them so different to the other people that are there. You know, I was having yeah. a conversation with the, a guy the other day who had, um, you know, gone through a couple of different groups and tried things. But – in his view, he, he wasn't one of those losers that was there. Yes. And it, it, it can be hard when you, like, the story that they're telling you reflects something completely different, you know, like that yeah. they, not yeah, and it's not the loser tag, but it's, it's the thing that that's where you fit in because that's where your drinking is taking you. That's where you're using is taking yeah. you. Um, I, and I people often, aren't willing to accept that. I often find that... Uh, people's concept of the uniqueness of their experience is a, is a barrier to them accessing treatment. You know, they're different. They don't need the same kind of help that uh, everyone else does. Or their suffering is different and they're beyond redemption or they're not as bad. Um, yeah, and I think and people I, try and listen. <clears throat> it's, what, it's a thing that's said quite often is, you know, like listen to the similarities and not the differences. Yeah, and yeah, because yeah. it's really easy to walk in there, and, and, and I think that's what desperation and willingness start to do. Yeah, is because if you if you're not really looking for that change, if you're still if your mind's still closed to the ideas, you're going to walk in there, and your mind's just going to put up defense mechanisms, and it's just going to mm. it's going to going to say, yeah, but I'm different, and I'm this, mm. and this what this won't work for me, and you'll mm. only hear that. But once you once yeah once the mouth shuts and the ears open the message can start to filter through a little bit better and you do start to hear the similarities. And that's where people um, can, can begin a, a, some positive change and start Absolutely. to identify. Absolutely. And then who knows how long it takes from there. Yeah. So desperation is actually the key driver, the key engine to overcoming those barriers of the sense of identity and the uniqueness and uh, to getting the mouth shut and the ears opening, isn't it? And have, have you seen that in your practice, Oscar? Have you seen how desperation has changed people into becoming more receptive? 
a hundred percent, a hundred percent. You know, especially at the moment during the coronavirus, I'm seeing a much higher percentage of people, which mm-hmm. once they're arriving in detox, are in a much more desperate place, a much more desperate and willing place. So, at the moment, because of how much more difficult it is out there, it's actually uh, become easier to work with a higher percentage of people at the moment. Yeah. Um, and I think that also speaks to the fact, you know, when people with their loved ones and people that are close to them, how they're encouraged to not enable their loved mm-hmm. ones who are in addiction. Um, it's because by, by enabling people, you're actually hindering them from reaching that rock bottom. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it's a kind of a, a backwards concept for some people to grasp. But, but you know, when, when, when you look at it like that, I, I think it makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. And Oscar, I've, I've heard you say before this idea that you need to surrender to win. Could you explain what that means and how does desperation fit into surrendering to win? Well, it's basically just the fact that, um, so, you know, me on my own with my unguided decision-making has made me end up in this place of rock bottom. Mm. So I need to surrender my own thinking or, you know, my own will, Mm. and I need to be open to be guided by something else, you know, something else that that, that is loving and caring and that's able to help me, whatever that is. And, yeah. And Craig, would you identify with that, surrandering to win? Yeah, and, and what's running through my mind with that is um, the phrase that I hear a lot. Um, I, had to be, I had to be completely broken down so that I could rebuild. Yes. You know, and, and just lose sight of all the, all the old ideas and lose sight of, of, of what they thought would work for themselves. So, and how um, does desperation yeah. fit into that, do you think, Craig? Uh, because you have been broken down, there's no, there's nothing left. You've sort of, you've sort of lost everything at that point, um, yeah. and physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, you know, it's just bankrupt as far as yeah. it all goes. Yeah. Um, and so it is a rebuilding process. It is a starting again, mm. and it's 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 almost like, uh, it, it's a great space to be in because you've got nothing left to lose. So why the fuck not give it a shot? You know? Why not? Why not? <laughs> All right. So look, on, on that sweet note, we're going to have to wrap things up. So I want, a, I want a final summary message from both of you. So Oscar, what final point would you like to make on the subject of desperation and willingness? Just the fact that, you know, if, if you find yourself in a place where you're in that complete and utter desperation, hold on to it and, you know, you, you use it. To, to propel in, into change and, 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 and never lose sight of, of what that was like. Yeah. And Craig, what would you say? Mm-hmm. One, one final point to make. Yeah, no matter how bad things get, hope always exists. Um, and just keep fighting. Keep fighting. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time, your pearls of wisdom. I look forward to the next time when we thank you. That's all for today's MedHeads. My name's Dr. Fergal Armstrong. We'll see you next time.